from Urban Communications. So you have a face that you can see. We've colour coordinated our tops that you can also see is Councillor Wazim Zafar, MBE, Cabinet Member for Transport and Environment at Birmingham City Council. Uh, welcome, Wazim. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin, for having me and thank you for wearing the Villa colours today. Yeah, that, well, they are my second side. Behind Liverpool, I am a Villa supporter. Uh, so anything I can do for the cause. Uh, well, whilst we're there then, what do you want to happen to the Premier League? Restart or uh, finish where we are? Um, so in an ideal world, not a void. Um, Villa survive. But look, on a, on a serious level, I, I think whilst, whilst football does, and I'm, I'm hugely missing football, I'm a season ticket holder at Villa, uh, and I've realised how much football means to me. And there's hundreds of thousands of football fans across the world who feel this way. We've got to think about the safety of the players and the safety of their families too. Uh, so whilst we'd love to football to restart behind closed doors and get some entertainment on, uh, on television, whether it's through the internet or through uh, some of the broadcast television channels, we have to ensure that the priority here is the safety of the players, the safety of the staff at the football grounds. So it's not just the, the, the playing side, it's the coaches, the physios and everyone else. You know, when we say it's going to be behind closed doors, there has to be an infrastructure that has to go in to support that. Uh, and, and also their families. Um, and to think, uh, you know, they've got to go back into training for a few weeks. And I've seen things on the internet which says they, when they tackle, they should look the other way. These things are not going to happen. We need to be absolutely realistic. So for me, what the safety is, is, is paramount. Uh, and, it, and if the season is uh, curtailed or if the season uh, does go on for another, another few months, uh, I don't think anybody will mind. Uh, it's a very, very no. difficult decision. And there is a huge economical issue as well here. Uh, unfortunately, some of the clubs in particular, uh, I'm looking at clubs in the lower leagues, that how, how they will survive this will be a huge, huge challenge. So I think we all need to come together. Football is really, really important to to our country and society in general. I think it's important we come together to find a solution that keeps football alive, but obviously ensures that health and safety is paramount. Yes, indeed. Safety first, Villa remain in the Premier League, Liverpool win the Premier League. I think they're the three priorities that we can agree on. I think, I think we can agree on that. And an honest point is Liverpool have by far been uh, an outstanding side. Um, I will say Villa did beat them in the Cup. And quite comprehensively, uh, but uh, some of those kids that played that day for Liverpool looked, looked in the first 20 minutes. They looked really, really good. So, uh, I, you know, I don't think anybody anybody would be too worried if if uh, the season was null and void, no relegation, but Liverpool were crown champions uh, of the Premier League. I think that would be a for me a fair result. But I, I can't see that happening because then you've got Leeds and the Baggies. Uh, querying about whether they should get promoted or not and there, there could be all sorts of legal battles so it's a very very difficult situation but uh, hopefully the right decision is made in the end indeed indeed if frank mckenna the chair and chief executive downtown in business is watching it i'm sure he'll be agreeing that uh, liverpool should win the premier league that old everton supporter anyway we weren't here to talk about football really this is the downtown den um if you're following on social media as well then uh, check out it using the hashtag uh, hashtag downtown den or, or tweet at dib brum d i w b r u m um and if you look beneath you to people watching on the chat function probably the chat rather than the q and a function if you want to post up some questions as Razim and i uh, chat for the next 45 minutes or so we'll try and pick up as many of those questions as we possibly can uh, we're going to talk about transport we're going to talk about environment we're going to talk about uh, the dreaded virus, of course, buzzing. But let, let's just start with you. You're one of those that has stayed very much close to home, represents the ward you were brought up in, now uh, serving uh, in the cabinet. Just why you want to be a politician, uh, perhaps uh, especially in these times, why would anybody in their right mind want to be a politician? What uh, what got you into politics? What drove you? So, so as you said, uh, Lazelle's and, and the community here and the neighbourhood here is, is something that means a lot to me. It's where I was born. Uh, the, the house I'm sitting in is the house I was born into. So I've, I've lived here for, for 39 years of my life and my family um, uh, have lived here a lot longer than that. And my late father also came and settled in this particular neighbourhood and so did my extended family. 
so Lazelle's uh, is 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 a place where it's it's a close knit community as it is, and we're as a family very much uh, um, very uh, closely associated with people here. But whilst I was at university, I I I started doing some cricket coaching, some football coaching, got involved with young people, um, met some of the local politicians, uh, including Khalid Mahmood MP, who had just been elected as the MP back then in the early 2000s, and started to get involved in organising young people and like-minded friends who had an interest in young people. And the one thing that always frustrated me was when politicians came along and um, they, they spoke about young people without talking to young people, and they knew it all. So I would often go to these meetings and uh, respectfully challenge some of those politicians. Uh, and then um, slowly started to get active in the Labour Party. My family was, uh, were, were Labour Party members and supporters uh, just across the road. Uh, uh, in the 80s lived uh, a former councillor, Saeed Abdi, who was a councillor for what was then the Hansworth Board many, many years ago. Uh, and he was a friend of my late father's. And, he, he reminded me, he's passed away a few years back, but he reminded me when I was elected that I used to deliver Labour Party leaflets on this road when I was an eight-year-old in exchange for Labour Party balloons and stickers. So um, <laughs> you know, I, I, I was, I like the colours certainly of the Labour Party many, many years ago. But uh, so I got, I started getting, getting active in, in, in the party, uh, working with the local councillors, with the local MP. Uh, and then in 2011, um, um, an opportunity arose for me to be become the Labour candidate here in Lazales and East Hansworth, and uh, what was then Lazales and East Hansworth, and now is Lazales Ward. Um, and I, I haven't looked back. Um, I'm I feel like I'm the local boy giving back to the community that's given me so much, and and the institutions that's given me so much. So I was born at Dudley Road Hospital, I'm, and and I serve as a non-executive director at the Sandwell and West Birmingham NHS Trust that um, you know that that runs that hospital. My father passed away at that hospital. My child was born in that hospital. My siblings were born. So I've got a very direct association with that. Uh, I went to Heathfield Primary School, just, just up the road on Heathfield Road. I now serve as a school governor there. Um, I went to Holt Secondary School and I do a lot of work with the school there, supporting the next generation of young leaders. I've started to get involved with Joseph Chamberlain Sixth Form College, which is my college. I've done some work there recently with the students. And um, I went to Aston University uh, um, and I, uh, my degree was in logistics. Um, and there was a lot about logistics and obviously transport management too. And one of my colleagues uh, on, the, on, on the degree course was the, uh, somebody who works to me now, the assistant director for transport connectivity, Phil Edwards, so we were on the course together. Uh, and it's funny because I, I did a, I went to do a career in community work and then in 2018 I was appointed to this role and realized actually <laughs> I, I, I did a lot of the theory at university and now I can start doing the practice. But, to, to be honest with you, I, I feel hugely privileged. Privileged that I'm in this position as a member, local member for Lazelles and in the cabinet, helping make important decisions about my city, the city that's given me and my family so much. It's our home, it's where we belong. Um, and, and it is a privilege because we don't know how long it, it will last, but whilst I'm in this position, I, I want to do the very work to the very best of my ability. And there are some challenging decisions and there's some controversial decisions, uh, the flyover, the clean air zone, the transport plan, walking and cycling. And I get called all sorts of names. And you know, when I go on some of the radio programs and, and stuff, this, it's hugely challenging. But I always look at, I didn't come into politics to be popular. I came into politics to change lives for the better. Uh, I live in an area with massive health inequalities. It's the third most socially deprived ward in the city. I need to play, I'm in this privilege role to make some changes that will start to address and reverse those inequalities and make Lazelles and Birmingham a better place for all of them. So you know, I, I'm always thinking about legacy uh, and what will be my legacy and what I, I contribute to, to, to as, as, as a councillor. And I'm not going to be a councillor in my life whilst I'm in this position. I enjoy it. Uh, it is challenging. You know, there's a there's a lot of issues you come across and, and you know it is hugely challenging but you, when you put your head above the parapet you expect to be challenged sometimes i think it got the challenge goes too far and it borders harassment but by and large people ask you these questions because they see you as somebody in a position of influence to make these decisions so um I, i'm not sure if i've answered your question but well, no, uh, no I, I think very very good uh, and fulsome uh, answer we'll come back to a number of those things obviously not least the 
the transport elements. Um, but just in practical terms, here we are, eight weeks into lockdown or sort of slightly semi-lockdown in the last few days. Um, what, what does a councillor, what does a cabinet member do? How, how do you, how have you been functioning for the past few weeks? Not least, um, particularly now, we'll get on to it, not least as the transport issues are becoming more and more um, pertinent to, to easing the lockdown. How, how have you been functioning? How have your colleagues on the cabinet and other councillors been functioning? Um, so, so it's been hugely challenging and it's, it's challenging for everybody, I, I guess, and, and councils are no different. And, uh, we, we've tried to, we're obviously in an emergency situation at the council um, and we're working remotely, we're all working at home. And first couple of weeks particularly were very difficult. Um, we didn't know how long this would last. Um, and for me, uh, you know, mentally it was quite tough in, in, in the first couple of weeks. And then the, the, what I was also lacking was a routine. So mm -hmm. every day felt like a Sunday, a typical Sunday, and I didn't know, um, you know what would happen. Spent a lot of time uh, in front of the telly, watching what's happening as things were unfolding, and at the same time scrolling Twitter to, to, to kind of capture what's going on. But since then, I think we, you know, I certainly have started to pick a routine. I'm, I'm in regular contact with my constituents. Obviously, I can't meet them physically. Uh, my advice bureau isn't running, but remotely, uh, you know, my, my mobile number, my social media, uh, various channels, targeting uh, different age groups and different dimensions, demographics of my, my constituents. I'm, I'm in regular contact and sharing information with them. And people are contacting me and remotely we are, I'm still doing casework, people can email me, people can contact my telephone. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a diabetic, I'm type two diabetic, mm. and I've also had some challenges with my kidney. So uh, I am in that vulnerable group um, and I've, you know, I've been in communication with my my GP. So I, I did heavily protect myself, in particular in the first few weeks, and I'm still protecting myself by limiting my uh, time that I spend outdoors. And, um, you know, I've got to be careful about myself. I've got to be, obviously, my mum lives with me too, uh, who's also uh, diabetic, and it's about how we protect each other. Uh, so I spend a lot of time, uh, Monday to Friday, in particular, nine to five, in front of my laptop in uh, team meetings, in Zoom meetings, in um, using other Skype meetings both as a local councillor, as a cabinet member, um, uh, and also in my role as a non-exec at the NHS Trust and the various roles I, I hold uh, in other institutions too. Um, so I've kind of got used to remote working. Um, product, in terms of productivity, I think at times remote working has increased productivity. And I was, I was yeah. talking to uh, the council's inclusive growth di director, Ian McLeod, and I think in the first six weeks uh, or five weeks of lockdown, we approved over a thousand planning applications in the council, so productivity just went through the roof. Um, um, we, you know, it's, 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 it's something, you know, agile working is something we really want to pursue in the long term. And obviously, uh, the, the, the limited journeys you make to different places, that also has an impact on climate change and our, and yes. our ambition to reduce carbon emissions too. So at the difficult time, there's, there's also a number of opportunities that have come about too. Yes, we'll come back to sort of lessons learned and where do we go from here as uh, we get to some kind of new normal as people are describing it. Uh, we're going to sort of focus really on the transport plan, particularly the sort of emergency transport plan that you've uh, published this week. But just to take one step back from that, of course, another new transport plan out and out for consultation and that raised a lot of interest. Uh, and um, debate, uh, as you were touching on. Just just go back, if you would, to that, and in particular, I guess, some of the things that were the headlines in that original transport plan, which I know you plan to return to or put rocket boosters under now with, with what's been happening. 20 mile an hour speed through the city centre, more speed cameras being talked about, etc. Just give us a sense of what, was, what were the headlines in that plan and where is that plan now? So uh, in, in July, uh, sorry, in January, uh, we went out for co consultation on our draft Birmingham transport plan. Um, uh, and there, there were four key principles within that. Um, and we, we've, we've maintained those three, four key principles in the emergency transport plan too. And those four key were reallocating road space uh, away from private cars in support of public transport, that is buses, trams, uh, trains, um, and towards walking and cycling. Uh, so just as a city, I think 
the one thing I said in, in some of the early interviews that keep, keeps being uh, replayed back is the fact that I said that King will, Carl will no longer be king in, in our city. Um, and, you know, a city, the, the motor city, um, which was built, a lot its infrastructure was built to, to support car. It, it's just not, it's unsustainable with the level of congestion we've got in the city, the high levels of air pollution. We have to have a shift away from, from private car towards sustainable uh, forms of transport. Uh, the second one was looking at recreating a city centre where sustainable transport takes a priority and looking at the sales idea and exploring that further and also repurposing the, exploring the repurposing of the A38 tunnels. You know, in a, at a time when we've got a climate crisis, um, we've got illegal and unsafe levels of air pollution, um, and we've got masses of congestion, which businesses say costs them, I think something like 12 million pound a week is, 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 is the damage that uh, congestion causes our economy in the city. And we've got this big stonking motorway, dual, dual carriageway that runs to the heart of the city. And we've got to look at repurposing that. And I'm not saying close it. I'm just saying we need to have a conversation about how that looks in future. Um, and then we also looked at parking as a demand management tool. Um, um, you know, we, we, we're exploring workplace parking levy. And we also want to look at, at how the price and availability of parking impacts on us choosing how we travel and you know how whether we should drive in or not and, and what have you uh, and and the other key uh, big move was creating active neighborhoods so slowing traffic down in neighborhoods uh, and allowing people who walk and cycle to recapture and dominate streets rather than private cars so there's the low traffic neighborhood from uh, waltham forest They've done some amazing work there that we, we're learning off and there's a lot of work that's taken place elsewhere too. So it's, it's, it's looking at how we can create a, a place where um, cars no longer dominate. And one quarter of our journeys in the city by car are less than one mile. A lot of these are to local schools, to the local high street. And, it's, and I totally understand some people have to drive because of accessibility issues, disability issues. I totally understand that. But those that can walk and cycle, those short journeys in particular, if we can ask them to leave their cars at home or give up on their cars and walk and cycle, that will uh, have a massive health impact for them and everybody else because pollution will reduce, the air will become cleaner. We've seen in the last couple of months with the lockdown how clean our air is. Um, uh, pollution levels have dropped because traffic's dropped in the city. You know, and, and people have been putting pictures up uh, on social media, you know, comparing old pictures to new pictures, and you could clearly see the sky is a lot cleaner. So there's been some positive. So, so those are the four key principles within um, within the consultation. That consultation uh, ended uh, a few weeks back, I think a week or two into lockdown. But the engagement continues because, you know, we, we can't just, uh, one of the conversations I was having with Paul Faulkner, um, a lot of the consultation and engagement took place pre-COVID. Yes. And COVID has changed things and created opportunities, but also challenges. You know, and some of the challenges is created for our businesses and the, and the retail industry. And we need to absolutely understand that impact before we publish and agree the full tra uh, Birmingham Transport Plan. Yes. And we will have some conversations. So next week, I'm on a round table with the Chamber of Commerce having similar conversations, uh, and this is all remote roundtables, and uh, having similar conversations with other um, uh, institutions too, the business improvement districts, uh, some of the other trade reps, to just get an understanding of how COVID has impacted on, on, on the economy in our city, on, on the trade in our city. So the policies we've been forward, in particular the timing of some of these policies, is, is absolutely crucial. We, we've got to help. At, there's a real opportunity for a green recovery in our city too, through through implementing uh, some of those policies. And just on timing, we'll move to, to this week's announcements, but just on timing, that's always the challenge, isn't it? Particularly for a city like Birmingham, constructed as it is, as you can say from its motor city heritage, uh, is that the sort of tipping point is, is not reached where the public transport, cycling, etc., is not there, or the capacity is not there in time for people to give up the car and they plus the practicalities of they've got to drop the child off at school on route to work and you know, it's going to add another half an hour or whatever it is to walk them to school, come back. How do you, and of course things are going to change as we'll, we'll move on to, but how do you ensure that the tipping point is reached where the infrastructure and the capacity is there 
to encourage stroke force people out of their cars. Yeah, so, so just an example you gave about a mother who has to drop a child off or two, potentially two children at two different schools. Yes. Get to work, on the way back home, pick them up. You know, she's going to struggle on public transport. Let's be absolutely honest with ourselves. But there are a lot of people. So I, I was, uh, some people call me a petrol head. I was absolutely addicted to cars. I would drive everywhere, whether it's a short journey or a long journey. Uh, and a couple of years back, I, I gave up on my car. Um, so we reduced a car in our household. The wife has a car, which I very, you know, rarely use, but it's there if I want to use it. Um, the, the, the key thing is um, I, I use public transport because I can get into the city centre. And if you live in inner city Birmingham, you've got quite good bus routes because most of the buses run go, go from a location to the city centre. Well, they come through inner city areas, you know, they can't fly in. So they come through inner city areas and you, you get decent, decent coverage and good reliability. But we have to improve reliability. That is absolutely key. We carried out a survey um, in January 2019, uh, a bus survey. And people, we're, a we're in a deregulated bus market. So people said to me, why are you carrying out a bus survey? The council doesn't run the buses. But the council has a huge role to play in the bus service in the city because we're the highway authority. Buses are stuck in the same traffic as other cars. It's counterproductive. So we had to understand um, you know, what we could do as a highway authority, but also as an organisation that can lobby those bus operators. And I personally thought that the, that the bus fares might be the biggest issue for people who are travelling and aren't travelling on the buses. But I was uh, pleasantly surprised that the unreliable, well, not pleasantly, but I was surprised that the, the unreliability of the bus service was the biggest issue in the survey. Uh, and, and there was another piece of work that Tom Forth, a a data fanatic did on the, the productivity or the lack of productivity of Birmingham based on um, how uh, unreliable our bus network is. So for me, the, what's absolutely key is how we can very quickly uh, improve the reliability. So buses, uh, you know, are not traveling at, you know, your journey is not going to be on a day, 40 minutes, on another day, an hour. You know, the journey will be 40 minutes or 35 minutes from mm -hmm. home to, to your workplace every day that you catch the bus because you're going through as much bus priority lanes as possible or bus gates um, and, and that for me is key otherwise the bus is being stuck at the same time uh, uh, at the same place as normal traffic is, is counterproductive uh, and you won't get people out their cars on the, on the buses so we've got to improve bus reliability as quickly as possible and i know we'll come on shortly to the current messaging brand public transport but in the medium to long term we've got to improve bus, bus reliability and that will have a huge role in, in helping with that particular shift that we were talking about. Yeah, and so just moving on to, to what you published this week, uh, then Wazi, just give us the, the, a sense of the elements uh, in, um, in the emergency transport plan, and this is really responding, A, to I'm sure the council uh, coming up with these thoughts on, it, on its own, but also prompted I think, by the government offering a, a few million here and there for, for active cycling, reallocating road space etc just give us a, a sense of that new plan and when it's uh, what, what we're going to see when so, sorry kevin i've just been disturbed by my 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 five-year-old son these are part of the challenges of working out indeed home. i've just about managed yeah. to keep my my 10 uh, year old and seven year old out of the office at this point yeah so could you just repeat that question again? yeah no, so know. just i was just saying about the, the emergency transport plan you published this week just give us a sense of that and, and the background to it. Obviously, the, the council itself uh, looking at what it can do and what needs to be done in, in an emergency situation, but also partly responding to what the government, through grant shops, the transport sector, has offered by way of funding some improvements, particularly about reallocating roads. So, um, the, the, Birmingham, the draft Birmingham Transport Plan talked a lot about. Uh, walking and cycling at the same time we we also published our uh, walking and cycling strategy and we've, we've done a lot of work uh, through the Birmingham cycle revolution uh, in the past few years on, on on cycling infrastructure in the city we launched the two blue lanes down the a34 and the a38 which were by and large well received by, by the citizens but in particular uh, people who, who were cycling or want to take up cycling in a safe place so last Saturday, when, um, when uh, Grant Shapps, the Transport Secretary, led the Downing Street briefing and talked about uh, walking and cycling being key priorities for the government and also looking at uh, how we can limit 
car travel in, in particularly in the in, in the city centres and the town centres up and down the country that fitted very nicely in with the draft Birmingham transport plan that we were um, we, we had consulted on. So after that, um, we worked uh, incredibly hard. Um, officers literally were on the phone to me on a call on Saturday evening. Very soon after that, we worked through Sunday um, and 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 the following four days where we uh, drafted uh, this emergency Birmingham transport plan, which all, which considered the uh, key, um, the, the four big moves uh, in the original transport plan and build, built upon them, uh, but looked at how we could, um, you know, create more safe cycling infrastructure uh, in, in the city. And, and we've broken the transport plan down into uh, what we could do in the very, very short term. So what can we do in the first few weeks? What can we do in June and July? Um, what can we do by September when we hope schools, colleges and universities uh, can go and can start to go back to some form of normality? And a few months after Project 93 and some of the key things in there, we, we absolutely, you know, one of the, the, the most popular um, aspect of the original transport plan was becoming a 20 mile per hour zone uh, uh, default city. Mm. We've, we've tried 20 mile per hour in a number of locations. There's been a lot of lobbying from various um, lobby groups uh, around that and, and people encouraging us to, to, to take that up as, an, as a realistic option. Um, we're a city um, which has 90% residential roads. So to introduce these 20 mile per hour zones in little areas is, is quite expensive because we've got to put repeater signs up at very short locations. However, if we were to become a default city, 90% of the residential roads would overnight become 20 mile per hour limit. And then the other 10%, your A roads, your B roads, your D carriageways, is where you'd have to put repeater signs because they'd be at different speed limits. So I think economically it works a lot better for us too. But the important thing, far more important than the economy is, we slow traffic down. In neighborhoods, when you slow traffic down, um, it makes it safer for people to walk and cycle because we're not going to realistically get segregated cycle lanes on every single road in every single neighborhood uh, across our city. Uh, and it's how we can link those segregated cycle lanes uh, uh, through our green travel districts, through our parks, through our canal networks. We also looked at, um, we, we did a couple of um, social distancing pilots in Erdington and King's Eve, where we took away some parking space and gave it to people to walk upon them. Uh, we tried that out a few weeks ago, very positive feedback. And that was really allowing people in busy high street they, um, as people start to go back out uh, and in particular into, uh, there's enough space for queues outside and people to walk past whilst observing that two meter distance. So it's about taking space away there from, from, from parking and, and giving uh, people the option of, um, of, uh, of walking past comfortably. Um, we all, we also, so we're looking at low traffic needs in a number of areas. One of the key things for me is there's some quick wins, Kevin, in places like Mosley and Bourneville and King's Eve, uh, because there's always been a strong lobby uh, and st strong campaigning for walking and cycling, and that's brilliant. Uh, and we will do what we can in those neighbourhoods. But if we have a look at some of the neighbourhoods, uh, like the, the ward that I represent here in Lazelles, where you've got high levels of health inequality, and, and, and in some of the households, you've got not one, but two, three, four cars per household. There's a very car-dominated culture. Uh, we've got to make some inroads into these communities because if we can get more people um, who are, you know, who have underlying health issues like I do, who are obese like me, walking and cycling, that will have a massive health benefit to them. So we really need to look at those communities. And I know we're, gonna, we're going to get a huge, huge uproar in those communities. Uh, there's a real class issue. I remember when I sold my car, uh, I went on the bus. My mom said to me, what are you doing? Um, you know, you, you've got a beautiful car. Why are you going back onto the buses? You haven't been on the buses since you were a student. And then when I started to learn how to cycle, she just couldn't understand what was going on. Because um, so, there's this real cultural issue, you know, you go from walking to cycling to the bus to, to, a, to a car, to a really nice car, and you, you know, that, that's the way it works in some cultures. So it's about understanding, you know, the, the real health benefits 
or we have to create safe places for our young people and our communities to cycle. This isn't about people who cycle uh, to, you know, tens of miles of, you know, commute on bike because they're professional cyclists or they've been doing it, uh, you know, for a long time. This is allowing people who don't usually cycle to feel comfortable that they can. So I've come across Bangladeshi constituents who used to cycle regularly in, in Bangladesh before some of them migrated here, um, who can't cycle here because there's too much car traffic. So if we can, if we can you know, evolve uh, and, and have this change of culture in our neighborhoods, I think it will go a long way. Yeah. Uh, and one of the other key, sorry, in the, in the announcement from um, uh, Grant Shops was e-scooters. Yes. E-scooters are so popular across the world. Um, I was last year in Stockholm at a environmental conference and um, you know, there, there's more e-scooters than bikes there. Uh, and and more more e-scooters than um, than private cars too, which which is which is quite interesting. Um, so we we in the last year or so were aware that the Department of Transport is looking at some e-scooter pilots, and that we'd been approached by a number of uh, e-scooter providers. Um, you know, there's some big companies out there. And, you know, Usain Bolt's company came to see us too, Bolt, uh, to, to have a conversation about e-scooters uh, and a number of others as well. Um, so we we've we've put in a pitch say we'd be really keen to have a trial uh, we're not going to introduce e-scooters overnight right across the city uh, but we, we you know we, we can introduce them in certain areas we're also working with the government on e-cargo bikes to look at if we can trial out e-cargo bikes in the city too uh, so there's a number of things we're doing in different areas of the city yeah part of the city so we stakeholders in the city involved too according to this morning's times boris johnson is putting partly part of the reason for him you know going uh, into hospital well, uh, with the dreaded COVID-19 down to his own obesity um, and uh, he's going to you know, redouble his efforts in terms of a cycling revolution and uh, obesity campaigns etc. What, what's your sense of, of, of the way the government is taking hold of the opportunity particularly around cycling and walking and sort of active travel? Is that going to stand the test of time and what, what more do we need to do to make sure that happens? So, so uh, the, the, the Prime Minister, um, he, has, he has a lot of faults, but one of his key strengths is he has always promoted walking and cycling, and cycling in particular. When he was Mayor of London, uh, he, 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 I think Andrew Gilligan was his cycling yeah. czar, and they worked very closely to, um, to promote uh, cycling in, in London. Um, well, here in Birmingham, when, we're not going to become Amsterdam overnight. It's <laughs> not going to happen. Um, but... You know, I think 1% of our journeys currently are by bike in our city. Uh, we had an aspiration to take that up to 5% in 2023 and 10% by 2033. Um, I think COVID has created loads of challenges, but one of the opportunities created is to really push through with, with cycling. And, you know, if we can get by 2023 rather than 2033 to bring the 10% target forward by 10 years, I think that will go a long way. But we've got to create a lot of safe, safe places for people to cycle. Uh, there's been a lot, a, a rise in uh, people cycling for pleasure over the lockdown. Uh, but I'm sure if we start to create uh, better infrastructure, we can get more people cycling and commuting to cycle. So the A34 and the A38 are good starts. We've also spent 15 million pounds doing up the towpaths on our canals network. Uh, uh, of that two million pound was spent on the, um, the creating a bridge um, on the network in Edgbaston because that's one of our busiest routes from the university to the city centre. Um, and, and we've got more canals than Venice. Uh, so we're, we're working very closely with the Canals and River Trust to see how we can improve signage so people can understand, you know, there's a map of the, 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 the canal network and the towpaths, you know, where people can cycle. You know, how long will it take to walk from the city centre to the to University of Birmingham or the city centre to Jelly Road Hospital via the canals? How long will it take to cycle? We've got to improve the cycling. We've got to also improve the lighting. So we're currently exploring how much it costs us to put some uh, cat's eyes uh, lighting into the canals network. That's one option because in the winter, when it gets dark uh, early in the evening and it's, it gets dark uh, light late in the morning, there's real issues about cycling and how safe or unsafe it is on the network. So we, we want to create a full network of safe cycling infrastructure, some of it on the road surface, 
so through our blue lanes, other segregated, segregated um, um, cycling lanes in high streets, in neighbourhoods, that link in and complement what we've got on the canals network too. Yeah, and just while you're on canals and waterways, uh, Razin, uh, and I'm going to turn to some of our questions, which are particularly on transport. Uh, Paul Cadman, well known in this parish, the chair of uh, Downtown in Business Birmingham, uh, he's asked me to ask you really about the very point you were just touching on, and a particular campaign he's involved in, uh, together with uh, campaigners for against single-use plastics, to make sure we use the waterways, with a particular reference to the Commonwealth Games, uh, not all that long uh, uh, in the future, I'll come back to the Commonwealth Games more generally, is there going to be money spent effort? to making sure those waterways can be used, are safe, are lit as you were just touching on in time for the Games? Um, so one of the key corridors for the Canals and River Trust nationally is the link between Birmingham City Centre and Perry Bar. Uh, they're leading that piece of work and we're working very, very closely with Noise on the regional board of the Canals and River Trust. So I work hand in glove with them. We've got a very good relationship uh, and we're looking at what we can do to capitalise on that. There's a number of options being considered, including water taxis to get people from the city centre to the to the village and the Alexander Stadium via the canals network uh, to improve the, the walking and cycling facilities there too. So we're hopeful that we'll have a sizable project to deliver that CRT, the Canals and River Trust are leading on. Yeah. Uh, we're also working <coughs> with them um, in terms of um, the opportunities from, say, Spring Hill, the city centre, Jewelry Court of Spring Hill, all the way up to Smedic. Uh, you've got right in the middle of that, the Midland Metropolitan University Hospital, the, the new hospital that's coming up. And that mm. we hope is a catalyst for uh, regeneration opportunities along that stretch of canals, both in Sandwell Metropolitan, uh, Metropolitan Council area and also the Birmingham City Council area, uh, the combined authority involved. So we're looking at developing a number of, and in, when we're, you know, we're going to get go through, unfortunately, go through a recession. There's going to be some challenging times, and we need some big strategic projects moving forward that will help in the green recovery um, and, and help us create local jobs, reskill our, lo our local people, and create employment opportunities for those who are unemployed and potentially and may have lost jobs in other industries. So there's a lot of opportunities that we're going to hopefully bringing together at that very strategic yeah. level. Okay, I'll, I'll turn to one or two of the questions that we've had in, uh, particularly as they, they focus on uh, transport. A couple in from Rachel Ede, who will be... How, are, how is Birmingham City Council measuring people's perceptions and feelings around social distancing on public transport? And I guess Rachel, like many of us, will have in mind the pictures that we've seen particularly in of two journeys in London where social distancing seems to have been possible. How's it working in, in Birmingham so far and how are you measuring how people feel about that as the well, lockdown continues to sort of ease off more and more? So, so but, but Birmingham, well, the whole country is different to London because we're in a deregulated market. But that doesn't mean um, we don't work with the, with the operators. So we have a very, very close relationship, whether it's with West Midlands trains, uh, the Metro service, which is run by Transport West Midlands, all the buses. Uh, and I'm also a member of the West Midlands Bus Alliance. And early this week, we had a meeting. Um, there's weekly calls, but we, there was our main board meeting early this week where all the bus operators were on the call. Uh, and, I, and I obviously <coughs> also regularly speak to National Express in particular because they're the major uh, bus provider in the, in the city. Want to see um, how you know what what, what uh, one five that is, so it's far lower than normal. Uh, but also to ensure that we support the industry um, as as a council, and we work together to lobby government for support. Because uh, in the in the short term, uh, the, the government has clearly given guidelines around public transport, and people should avoid using it if they potentially can. But we know some people don't have a car, and the employer is demanding for them to turn up to work, so they've got no other option. So. The less people, the, you know, the people that should be using public transport are only those who absolutely have to use public transport because they've got no other option. Um, so we, we've got to, in the medium to long term, protect our bus industry, protect our rail industry because they will be absolutely vital. Uh, not, not so, you know, not so vital uh, in the in the generic thing, in but vital for some people in the short term, but hugely vital in the medium to long term. You know, our priorities are still there to support public transport. Uh, um, um, when think when we get through this, um, so we're we're working very closely with them. Clearly, we've got to protect the, the staff 
uh, in the bus industry. So there's extra support that's gone in for, um, for, for, for bus drivers. A lot of them already had the visors uh, on, but there were there was some holes there for um, um, on those particular plastic visors that have been covered mm -hmm. up. Um, there's a lot. They, we're trying to keep it contactless, so they're not touching money either. Uh, that that has been a bit of a problem for some of the smaller operators who haven't got the contactless facilities on their on their buses. Uh, and then obviously the seating in in, in the bus. We, we need to ensure that people are sitting on the seats that have been allocated because they're there to support people on social distancing. So sit next to the win window, avoid sitting in a seat where somebody sat in the in front of you uh, and or behind you that so you can adhere to the two, two meter social distancing. What that does mean is buses have a very small capacity compared to usual capacity. Uh, so what the bus operators are looking to do is put on more buses to ensure that we, the passengers that they have to cater for who haven't got private car uh, and can't walk and cycle uh, to nations can, can can access um, uh, the transport. So th there are huge challenges, but we are working very, very closely with, with the industry who obviously are also working very closely with um, uh, the, the Confederation of Passenger Transport and other bodies. It's, it's, it's a huge joint of uh, effort right now, very closely with Andy Street and his team at the Combined Authority on Transport West Midlands. And uh, we, we absolutely want to ensure that there, there is a public transport industry in the medium to long term that can support us as we move move uh, people across our city and uh, region in a, uh, in a in a sustainable way. Yeah, and, and one other question on on all of that, and really, you know, this whole point about how we move back from this uh, us doing our civic duty and avoiding public transport, getting in our cars, and then how we how do we get back to having less cars at your are already becoming busier and more congested as lockdown measures begin to relax as public transport is likely to be less favorable mode of transport for a few months yet how realistic is it going to be to be able to discourage a return to car dependency in Birmingham so from, from Easter Sunday to three weeks later we we uh, we did some analysis of what traffic looks like in Birmingham and there was a 40% increase over those three weeks, which, which, which was uh, obviously a huge concern. And then we also looked at what's happened elsewhere across the world um, when, um, when uh, countries have come out of lockdown. In Wuhan, it, the figures were, uh, it was a lot of journeys that went from public transport to, to private car. Uh, understandably, so I'm, uh, I'm a bus user and I'm, I'm thinking twice about using uh, the buses. I'm thinking twice about using the the trains because of my health and the, the risks that I've got. And I know thousands and thousands of people are, are having those exact that thoughts. Um, so we, we've got to, and that's why we think the, the shorter journeys, the journeys I reflected on earlier, those that are less than one mile, um, a lot of them are on a normal day to your local school, to the local shopping center, to the local high street, to your friend's house just around the corner. If those journeys can be carried out by walking and cycling, wherever possible, I think we will, you know, and this, we will help make what we've got currently out there, the new normal. Yeah. This, these traffic levels, these air quality levels need to become part of the new norm. And we need our people, particularly our young people, to enjoy the space that we've got out there. Because for far too long, particularly in our city, cars have dominated streets. I, I remember, not, not so long ago when I was a kid, uh, playing cricket and football on our streets. Um, and, and there was a little alleyway just across the road of where I am here in Lazelles. And there used to be 20 of us kids playing cricket and football there, you know, until from very early in the morning until late at night. And we used to have, we used to have a huge amount of fun. Uh, the, the, the boundary uh, for uh, when we played cricket was on the other side of the road. So we used to have people literally fielding on the road. And there, was, there, was, there weren't as many cars there today. Today, there are so many cars on the road that the alleyway that we used to play on, half of it is blocked off because it's not parking there. Uh, and there's no way of playing cricket or football. So we want to get to a place where our dependency on car and private car is reduced substantially over time. It's not going to happen overnight. And we all know that. Um, but if we can start to reduce that over time um, and, and get people to start enjoying their space, low traffic neighborhoods, these active neighborhoods that we want to create, uh, and, and that's through little subtle changes, a road blockage here with, you know, put a, put a, 
put some plants, flower pots and stuff to block a road off here or there to slow traffic down. Um, you know, if, so, if, if a particular road is being used as what we call a rat run from one high street to the other, block that off to keep the traffic on the main roads and block off the residential streets. And let those communities that live on those streets start to dominate those roads again is part of the emergency transport plan. And in the coming weeks and months, we will start to implement that. Uh, and I know there will be some opposition. There always is. Uh, and there's always people who are reluctant to change, but we have to change. Uh, we have to change. We have to bring down uh, air, air pollution levels. We have to get people walking, cycling. We have to get people fitter and healthier. Uh, and Boris won't be the other, the only politician who's who starts to look at his own weight because I think I need to take a serious look at my weight too and you know, lead from the front and look at how I can walk and cycle a lot more than I've historically done. We, we, might, we might come back to uh, COVID and particularly some of the, the groups that it's having a big impact on, but I'm keen that before we do finish at two that we just touch on the other big area, I suppose, a big area in terms of where you've made a big policy move and a big area in terms of uh, moved uh, uh, because of COVID and because of the, uh, the lockdown. And that, of course, is air quality. Just run us through, if you would, Rosin, where are we in terms of the council's clean air zone proposals? Interest, shall we say. Uh, and what's happening with it now because of uh, a problems in some of the sort of technology and problems, of course, of uh, uh, lockdown. Um, so the, 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 the obviously people, most people will be aware of the history of the clean air zone and the ministerial direction which we had on the clean air zone still stands today. We've got to get um, air quality uh, to legal level levels, in particular uh, 40 milligrams per cubic meter of NOx levels, which is the WHO guidelines and also the legal level, level in the shortest possible time. Um, oh, very quickly after the um, uh, after the COVID challenges and the, the lockdown, uh, I had a conversation with officers at the council and and also uh, Paul Falconer at the Chamber of Commerce. Paul is uh, Paul and the Chamber of Commerce have played a critical friend role with the council on on, on the CAS, but they've also helped us co-design the mitigations and exemptions. For, for the city, so it's been a very close partnership. With and the conversation was, um, we're, we're, we're due to launch in the summer. We don't know how long this lockdown is going to last. We don't know the impact. We don't know what what's going to happen to the local economy. Uh, I want to write to uh, the transport secretary and the defra defra secretary, uh, and ask them to agree to a postponement until uh, January 21, and also ask them to amend the ministerial direction. You know, we, there's conversations with politicians, with some MPs too, um, and, and everyone thought it's, it, it made sense. It, you know, there, there's no way that we can launch a clean air zone this summer. Um, so we, we wrote uh, a letter, um, and, and very soon afterwards, there was, there was also obviously uh, private conversations between officers of the council and the civil servants too. Um, and we got a very positive response to, to say, yes, there is agreement. Um, but we didn't get a, an amendment in the ministerial direction. I just want to make that clear. That ministerial direction stands. Now Bath as a city, Bristol, Leeds, Manchester, there's a number of cities, Sheffield are developing their projects too. So there's a number of cities, um, particular core cities across the country that are uh, either in the process of developing or about to launch their clean air zone. So we're all in the same place and we're having conversations too of how we should deal with this alongside the, the government's uh, joint air quality unit. So as it stands, the clean air zone won't be launched until January 2021, at the earliest. Um, at the same time, we've, we're continuing to roll out the exemptions. Uh, we want to roll out the mitigations. But at the same time, I'm also having conversations with uh, particularly the private sector in the city uh, to say, these were the mitigations that we pulled together and exemptions pre-COVID. Now, with a change of environment, do we need to fine tune any of these? Um, and more importantly, do we need to go back to government to say, actually, we, we need this pot of money to do this extra because of the impact COVID-19 has had? Now, I'm less, I'm, I'm keen to launch a clean air zone as quickly as possible because it's the right thing to do. It's gonna clean up the air, it's gonna reverse health inequalities, and it's gonna play an important role in the green uh, recovery. Um, but 
so I'm not too keen on more exemptions. I'm keen on mitigations, which allow people, give people support to get compliant as quickly as possible. So if we can get more people, so I know that the shift in the council's taxi policy late last year, which, which is in line with the clean air zone, has already pushed a lot of our taxi community to get to compliant levels. So the 15 odd million that was allocated for them, we may be able to, if it's not all used up, allocate that to another aspect to either support the taxi community or another section of society. So we're working very closely in the coming weeks. And next week we've got this round table with the, with the chamber to get a better understanding of the, the, the support we've got and what else is needed. Um, and, and look, uh, whilst I've always said this about the clean air zone, I know it's a challenging policy. It's an important policy, but the private sector create jobs and protect jobs and protect, protect the local economy. We will do everything possible to support them through this. But that doesn't mean um, supporting a, a particular business or a number of businesses who are sort of the culprits when it comes to polluting the air. You know, we, we, we've, got to, we've got to get the balance right. So we will provide the support to help people get compliant in the short, shortest possible time. But, but in summary, uh, at the moment, it's all systems go at the January, uh, but you're open to continuing conversations about further mitigations and making sure we can all get to the right place. And just to add, um, we've always said, um, we, 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 we said historically previously that summer 2020 we will launch, but we didn't have a precise date. And we've always said we will give the city six months notice on a precise date. So if we're going to launch in January, on January the 1st, I'm just saying, give, us a, give you an example. We will announce that by the 1st of July this year. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, we've got that on record. Uh, just one question on environment we've had here. We've got about five minutes to go. So if you're desperate to get a question, then do that function and I'll try and get that across to Wazim. But one question already in. This is from uh, David Bonas at WSB. Uh, uh, sorry, Kevin, I didn't get that question. I, my oh, I'll give it again. I think, I think my uh, microphone went a little bit there. Um, what is Councillor Wazin's view on how COVID-19 may impact in climate change? And that's from David Bonas at WSP. Yeah, so that's a very important question. And um, the, the Climate Change Task Force that Birmingham's set up, uh, cross-sector, cross-party uh, task force, which I chair, um, is, is, is looking at, uh, obviously, uh, we, we had set a target of uh, being carbon neutral by 2030 when we declared the climate emergency last year as a council. So we're working towards that. We've had some baseline work uh, taking place um, on, on analysing what, what the city looks like and the journey to zero carbon by 2030, it's realistic because the combined authority set a target of 2041, the uh, government set a target of 2050, so we set a brave target uh, of 2030 when we declare the climate emergency. Uh, and what I've asked, uh, what we as a task force have asked is that group to go, the, the organization, the consultancy that's doing that, that piece of work is to go away and analyze um, what the, the impact of COVID would be on that. So we're looking at that very, very carefully. And we've got a technical group set up uh, of the three universities in Birmingham, ULB, Aston and BCU, which, which are working very, very closely with us on that. Um, so there, there are threats to the, clearly to the private sector, but there's also some opportunities. Uh, and I think one of the key opportunities that's come forward is agile working. Um, so I, I, for instance, I've already told my staff, whenever we go back to normal, I will try to do a, a, at least one day work from home because technology allows me to do that. Technology allows me to function as a politician uh, and, 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 and have meetings. And you know, I will also, there was times when I would go to London uh, on the train for one, for a half an hour meeting, very important meeting, um, um, rather than have a conference call or, or, or use this, this sort of technology that we're using today. And I think that creates opportunities if we've got, if traffic levels and if your traveling demand drops as, 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 as a society, that's going to have an overnight impact on gas emissions in the city because uh, wherever you are, approximately a third of gas emissions is transport. So if you've got, you know, if there's less journeys being made, there's, there's clearly a shift there. Um, so there's that one clear opportunity. Um, moving forward, clearly part of, you know, part of coming out of the recession 
has to be building, an, building a plan for recovery. And what we clearly want to do here in our city is have a green recovery. So how many jobs can we have that look at supporting, supporting that piece of work um, around, around the green recovery? You know, what can we do around house building and having ha houses which are zero emission houses, which, which utilize solar, uh, solar energy and all sorts of renewable energy. There's a lot of work taking place um, at the uh, Tysley Energy Park. We want to create some, some more renewable energy. There's interesting work we're doing on hydrogen buses and doing a pilot of 20 in the city. So I think what COVID does in terms of our work around climate change, it speeds up um, a lot of the work that we were already doing because it's become an even bigger priority. And I think economically, and as we fight the recession and fight back from the recession, I think those opportunities can be far bigger than, uh, and we can grasp them far quicker than we've done in the past. Yeah. Okay, thank you. Um, I've got two minutes to go. So two quick answers to two very, very quick questions, if I might, Razin, uh, <clears throat> before we lose you and lose our audience. Um, Commonwealth Games, is that what, if any, impact is COVID-19 going to have on uh, the Co uh, Commonwealth Games, the preparations for, the running of it, and indeed possibly even the timing of it? So we, we know there will be an impact, and we're, we're working uh, around the clock to analyse the Commonwealth Games. The Commonwealth Games is a huge, huge opportunity for our city and region, not just the 11 days of sport, but the, 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 the investment, the Games will act as a catalyst for major investments. So the, the hundreds of homes will build at the Athletes Village, the transport improvements, a new train station, the new bus interchange, the, um, uh, the Sprint Network, the Alexander Stadium, the, the swimming baths at, um, um, at Sandwell, and everything else. The, the, clearly, work hasn't been uh, continuing as per normal because of the challenges COVID-19 has created and social distancing. Um, so moving forward, we're, we're working very closely with the, the OC, the organising committee, the government and the Commonwealth Games Federation to look at how we can still, Birmingham can still put on uh, uh, games in the summer of 2022, which are uh, reflective of the amazing city we are. We don't want to put on a second rate games, just a plan B. We clearly want to put on a plan A, which is showcase the best of Birmingham. Um, and to do that, we're going to need, I think, definitely need some extra investment uh, from, from the government. How much that is, we don't really know at this particular stage, but we desperately want to uh, bring, you know, continue with the, with the plan to, to, to deliver the games. Right. And then finally, uh, social care is probably the, the, the area of life and the sort of category, if you like, of people who have been most impacted by uh, COVID-19. It, it, we had a social care crisis anyway going into this, uh, uh, ability, the inability of many, many governments not to, to deal with it, to reform that sector. What, what do you think the big lesson, what is the big change coming out of this terrible crisis that, were, that needs to bear fruit in terms of the future of social care? So Kevin, whether it's social care or the NHS, um, we, you know, we we pride ourselves um, on the NHS. It's one. It's probably the most integral element of our country. You know, what makes Britain, Great Britain, is, uh, is 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 and part of that is the NHS, uh, and and social care obviously fitted in, fitted in alongside that. Over the last ten years, over the last decade or so, we've dismantled these services, and we're seeing. We've had this pandemic, um, and it's a very difficult time to be in government. Let's, you know, let's absolutely acknowledge that. It's easier to be in opposition right now than in government, whether you're in local government, regional government, or national government. But over the last 10 years, the damage we've done to social care and the NHS, and we're seeing the fruit of it now. And the fruit is, you know, the, the statistics and the, the Downing Street briefings we get every day when the hundreds of deaths are announced, hundreds of families that have lost a loved one, um, and, and friends right across this country who've been impacted. Um, and the key lesson for me is, and a lot of those people who are in social care are people who've given blood, sweat and tears for our country. And we, we've not given, we've not repaid them back the way we should have. We've let them down and we've let their families down and we've let generations down. Uh, moving forward, we, we have to learn from those mistakes irrespective of what colour the political parties are. You know, I'm not just blaming the Conservatives. We all, you know, whether in opposition, we should have been a stronger opposition to what the government were doing. We should have pushed them harder. And the government should have done a lot more. Um, 
but we, we have to realize the, the mistakes we've made and we have to put them right and the level of investment we put into social care and the level of investment we put into the, the health care the nhs that's primary care whether that's acute care has to improve and it has to improve really really quickly yeah okay and on that i fear we have to draw things to a conclusion as people will go off or maybe maybe i don't know in the covid world does everybody have a work early and um, enjoy the sunshine <laughs>